Okay, so tonight we are continuing on our Genesis series. The title of the message tonight is The Allegory of the Two Women. And I'd like to begin tonight by asking you a question. Maybe several questions. So here it is. If I would ask you, what would you say? What does God like? What does He like? What makes God happy? Have you ever considered this? What does He want? Kaylin, what would you say? What does God like? For him to be expressed. For him to express. Okay. Abhishek, what does God want? Uh, Christ. Christ. Okay. Phil, what does what makes God happy? Man. Man. Okay. Those are very good answers. One of them is correct. Which one is it? Okay, let me tell you something. The Bible tells us what makes God happy is His Son, Jesus Christ. If you say, God, what do you want? He says, I want Christ. What makes you happy? Christ makes me happy. What do you like? I like my Son, Christ. Some proof for this is in the New Testament. When the Lord was being baptized on the earth by John the Baptist, there he was on the earth, the Spirit came down upon him. And then what did the Father say from the heavens? This is my Son, my beloved. This is the one I love. I just not like him, I love him. This is the one I love, my beloved. In whom what? I have found my delight. God, not what, who do you delight in? The Father would say, my beloved, the Son, that's who I delight in. When the Lord took John and James and Peter up to the Mount of Transfiguration, a very special situation. And then there he was, transfigured before their eyes. And on top of that, there were two other persons there, right? Yes. I think it was uh, Moses and Elijah, is that right? Peter was so impressed. He was, was like, wow, look at that. It's Moses. I've heard about you, Moses. I've read your stuff. There you are, Elijah, man of powerful works. And so Peter, thinking it's a smart idea, said, we're going to build three tents. One for each of you. And before he could even finish his thought, finish his wonderful plan, the Father interrupted from the heavens and basically said, Be quiet. I don't want to hear anymore. And you know what he did? He took Moses away and he took Elijah away. And he left Jesus there. And he says, This is my beloved, in whom my soul delight. Hear him. This is what makes God happy. His Son, Christ. 
Christ makes God happy. You know what makes him happier? What makes what makes God happier? More Christ. The only thing that can make God happier is there's more Christ. So God's desire is not just to have one son, but you know what? He wants to have many sons. This is what God wants to do. This is His purpose. I want many sons. The more sons, the happier I am. And so that brings us to our first point on the outline. Roman number one says, God's eternal purpose is to produce many sons for His corporate expression. These sons are produced not by human effort, but by the grace of God. Christ is God's delight. Christ is God's beloved. And in Colossians 1.19, Paul says, In Christ, in Him, all the fullness was happy to dwell in, pleased to dwell. God was very happy, very pleased to dwell in the Son. And then look what Paul says in Galatians. Here's something else that also pleases God. But when it pleased God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace, to do what? To reveal His Son in me. Christ pleases God. Guess what else pleases God? To set us apart so that He can put His Son into us. And then Ephesians 1.5, predestinating us unto sonship through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. It is God's good pleasure to cause us to become his sons, that sinners could be made into sons of God. And when this happens, Romans 8.29 says... Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So when God does this, when he works this out, Christ will be the firstborn among many brothers. If someone asks you, what is the Bible all about? You can answer them in one word. Sons. The Bible is about sons. It started with his first son, the beloved. And it's going to end up with many sons. That's the corporate expression of God. These sons, they're going to look like the father. They're going to look like their dad. They're going to act like him. They're going to express him. They're going to talk like him. They're one corporate expression of God. This is what God is doing. This is the main thing. This is what we call downtown God's economy. You know what I mean when I say that? What does that mean, Abishag? Downtown. When people say downtown, what do they mean by that? Like official offices and stuff. Official offices? Yeah, okay. What do you think, Phil? What's downtown? Like center of town. Center of town? What does that mean, though? Location. Location? <laughs> okay. Austin, anything to that you want to add? Downtown. When we say that, this is downtown. God's economy. 101. 
maybe not 101. Let's make an upper course division. 365 or something. Just 420. Just throw out some numbers. Downtown, because you know what? Downtown is where it's happening. If you, live, if you want to be alone and you don't want people to bother you, you live out in the country. Live with the cows and the goats and so forth. And it's quiet and peaceful. But if you want action, activity, where things are happening, the latest and the greatest, downtown. you know where you go? You got to go downtown. Right? Yes, sir. Listen, this, for God, eternal purpose, I mean, that alone tells you where we are. God's eternal purpose is to produce many sons. That is as downtown as it gets. You can sum up the whole Bible in that one phrase. The whole Bible says God wants to produce many sons through His grace that they will become His corporate expression. That's it. If you get this, I can probably sit down. But the brothers will probably send me back up right here. All right. Okay. So you may say, what does this have to do with the allegory of the two women? And for those of you who don't know what an allegory is, you may want to write this down. It was an SAT word, I think. An allegory is a story or a narrative in which the characters and the events symbolizes, symbolize ideas, concepts, and principles. I'll say it one more time. An allegory is a story or a narrative in which the characters and the events symbolize ideas, concepts, and principles. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. The allegory of the two women. And the reason why we, talk, we want to talk about this is because God has chosen to use this allegory to help us see and understand how God will get many sons. How He will carry out His purpose. And also in this story, or this allegory, or this narrative, we will also see what we end up experiencing on our side. So, in a sense, you can say this desire of God to make known to us His eternal purpose, in a sense, He's speaking to us three times. First, in Genesis 12 to 17. That's the actual story itself. The characters are found there. The events occur in those chapters. Then on top of that, he says those things are an allegory. That's number two. And then number three, in Galatians, Paul explains to us what the allegory means. You know, there's an old proverb that says, if I tell you something three times, it must be true. I don't know how true that is, because I've only told you that once. (laughs) But I can say at least here, 
with God's eternal purpose, tonight, you can say it's being told to us three times. One, as the events themselves, with the characters themselves in Genesis. Two, that we would know is an allegory. There's more to it than just the events and the characters themselves. And three, the explanation comes in to tell us what they mean, who they represent, what their actions are for. Okay? It's only fitting, obviously, that for God to produce many sons, obviously you need a father, but you also need a mother. mother. So in this case, I believe it makes sense that God will use the allegory of two women, who also are two mothers, who also produce two sons through one man, Abraham. You start to see the connection a little bit, you see. But that's the simple part. Then to go a layer deeper, Paul says in Galatians 4.24, these things are spoken allegorically, for these women are two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, bringing forth children unto slavery, which is Hagar. Okay? The other one is Sarah. She's the covenant of promise, the covenant of grace, which is how God desires to produce his sons. And we're going to look into this tonight. Okay? So the way God produces his son is found in point three. Roman number three. God wants to produce his son through grace. And the opposite of that, the contradiction of that, is our human effort in our flesh. In coordination with the law. And so now we need to ask, what is grace? We realize grace is important. So what is it? We're in Roman 3. Let's read this together, Roman number 3. Grace is the process trying God, being everything to us, and operating in us to bring forth Christ for the fulfillment of God's eternal purpose. The first time that God appeared to Abraham, the last verse in Genesis 11, but then it really starts in Genesis 12. He comes to Abraham. He says, Abraham, I want you to come out. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed to inherit the land. And starting from that chapter, God comes to Abraham a number of times, continuing to, to proclaim his promise to Abraham. At the start of this, Abraham is 75 years old. Then in Genesis 16, finally, Abraham has Ishmael. And we will come back to him in a little bit. And when this happened, Abraham is 86 years old. So about 11 years has gone by. And here comes Ishmael. Ishmael is rejected by God. God does not want Ishmael. So, 13 years goes by. 
And after that 13 years, and we will see that in that 13 years, God had no communication with Abraham. And actually, I will show you God was offended at Abraham. It's like a friend who's offended at you. Don't want to talk to you. Don't want to see you. And after that 13 years, God came back to Abraham. And when he came back to Abraham, he introduces himself to Abraham in a new way. In Genesis 17:1 here, and when Abraham was 99 years old, Jehovah appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the all-sufficient God. Walk before me and be perfect. So God came to Abraham, and it is in this chapter that Abraham brings forth Isaac. And right before this happens, God says, Here I am, Abraham. Do you know who I am? I'm El Shaddai. That's the Hebrew word there. I'm El Shaddai. I'm the all-sufficient God. Another meaning for this is, I'm the God of the utter. I'm the God with an udder. You know what an udder is? An udder is what's under a cow, the pouch that produces milk. This is the meaning. If you get into this and you study this word, this is one of the, this is one of the best meaning, meanings for the word El Shaddai. God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm sufficient. I'm full of milk. I'm full of Everything you need, minerals, vitamins, nutrients, to produce a son. I want a son from you, but you can't do it. But I can. That's what grace is. I'm going to do something for you. If you just enjoy me as your supply, as everything. You know, an udder here is very good. Because when a baby is born, I, I don't know what the facts behind this is, but... I know a little bit from being a baby when I was younger. But when a baby's born, I think all it needs for like a year or two, is that right? It's just milk. Six months. If you, if you, listen, if you just gave me a diet of milk right now, I would not be very happy. In fact, I don't know how well I would be. Right? I would ask for some burgers and pastas and so forth. Right? But think about this. Every one of us probably in this room had this experience. When we were born for the first six months or a year, whatever that time is, all we had was milk. And that in itself was sufficient for everything you need to grow, to develop, to live, to exist. Isn't that amazing? Wouldn't it be so nice if somebody could just come up with one food and if you just eat that, you don't have to worry about anything else. You know, honestly, we enjoy eating, but it's a hassle, isn't it? You gotta go shop, you gotta cook, so forth, so forth. So when God came to Abraham and says, listen, Abraham, I'm El Shaddai, I'm the all-sufficient one with an udder. He's saying, I'm everything you need. To carry out my purpose, I don't need anything from you. Right. I can do it all for you. I'm everything you need. Just like a baby, he just needs to enjoy and receive the milk from the mother. 
just receive from me. Let me supply you with grace. And if this happens, a son will come forth out of you. And so listen, 13 years before, when Abraham tried to produce Ishmael out of his flesh, in essence, what he was saying is, God, I don't think you're sufficient. I don't think you, I don't think you can do this. You called me when I was 75. It's been 11 years. Where's the sun? And I'm getting older. You haven't done it after year one. You didn't do it after year two. You didn't do it after year three. I'm not sure anymore. It's been 11 years. Maybe you can't do it. Maybe you're not sufficient. So when Abraham did something for himself, he basically in essence says, You're God, you're not sufficient. Wow. So I have to do this myself. Wow. So he exercised his natural strength through the suggestion of his wife to take Hagar, who's not his wife. In fact, they never got married. At least there was no record of it. But Hagar, uh, Sarah gave her to be his wife. By definition, that's a concubine. And in that joining to Hagar, he produced Ishmael. So the allegory there, the narrative there, the symbol there, is that Abraham exercised something out of his own effort through his flesh with Hagar, who represents the law, to produce Ishmael, which, who was rejected by God. And this is not what God wants. What God wants is to supply Abraham, to be a rich supply to him, to be an utter, to be utterly rich to Abraham. So look at these verses here. Philippians 1.19 For I know that for me, this will turn out to salvation through your petition and the bountiful supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Next verse, and not holding to the not holding the head, out from whom all the body being richly supplied. And Paul says here, this only I wish to learn from you, that you receive the Spirit out of the works of law, out of the hearing of faith. He therefore who bountifully supplies to you the Spirit and does works of power among you, does he do it out of the works of law or out of the hearing of faith? Ephesians 4.16 Out from whom all the body being joined together and being knit together through every joint of the rich supply. So Abraham, in this allegory, Abraham signifies faith. He's the father of faith. Sarah signifies the covenant of promise, which is the covenant of grace. And what God wants to do is he wants us, who are sons of Abraham's, Therefore, we're sons of faith for us to exercise our faith to substantiate God's grace. And in doing so, God would bountifully supply to us the Spirit to be everything to us and to operate within us to bring forth Christ. The way God brings forth Christ is by us simply enjoying Him, receiving Him so that He can be everything to us. 
And then once he gets in as everything, he begins to operate within you. And then out from that, Christ comes forth. And so here in Galatians, Paul connects faith, the Spirit, and the law together. You see? In Galatians 3, 2 and 5. But very much like Abraham, we also experience the same thing. Just as Abraham was justified out of faith, probably everyone in this room, we've been justified of faith. We're sons of Abraham. Okay? That happened when he was probably 75. And at that time, the Lord promised Abraham, you're going to have a son. I'll bless you with a seed. But God has his way. He has his timing. And his timing and his way was not the next year or the year after that. It wasn't for some time. And Abraham could no longer wait. He could no longer wait. So because of that, he exercised his own flesh to do something out of his own effort to work something out. And so we may be the same way. So we are saved, no doubt. We've had the experience of faith. We receive the Lord into us. And then you read the Bible. God's promising all kinds of things. He'll make you less anxious. He'll make you more kind, more patient, less sinful, so forth. And as the years go by, you discover I'm still pretty rotten. I'm really not that patient. My patience went from four minutes to five minutes. My diligence, not so good. I try to read the Bible every day. I have a good start for three weeks, and then I go two months without reading. So then you know what we do? We bring in the law to help us. We say, well, maybe I'll go ask Phil. Phil? Can you call me every day? Check with me if I read the Bible. In fact, better yet, why don't you set up a schedule and the two of us can read together? You know what that's called? It's called the law. The law comes in as a regulation to try to help us by our effort to do something. Then maybe if I can do this for a year, maybe my diligence will be better. Or what if, uh, you know, you're not a very forgiving person, so you try to be more forgiving. So you say, from now on, if a brother ever cuts me, I would just, I won't say anything. So you're in the meeting and a brother step on your toe, and you want to lash out at him. But you go, no, I'm not going to say anything. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. You know what it's called? It's called the law. That may work for a little bit. After a while, that brother, same brother, he just cuts you the wrong way. You're just not going to say anything. 20, 19, 18, 17, 16, 15. The law. And you know what? If you do that, after maybe a year or two, you may actually be a little more forgiving, more patient, more enduring. And you say, God, look, I, I did it. I'm a little more patient than I was before. 
God says, that's Ishmael. I didn't do that. Your effort with your regulation produced Ishmael. And I reject that. I'm offended at that. You see that? So in hearing a word like this, you may go, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do anything. Well, not doing anything is to do something. Do you understand? Here, come here. I'll show, give me an example. I'll show you an example. Come up here, please. Okay, let's say you're at the edge of a cliff and you're about to fall. All right? And you say, Tito, save me. Save me. Do something. Okay. I rescue you. I did something, didn't I? Okay. Same scenario. You're at the cliff. About to Tino, Tino, save me. I'm like, mm, no. Not do anything. So you fall. <laughs> right? Even, so they say, Tino, what happened? Why didn't you do something? You didn't save him. So I didn't do anything. You can't blame me. Actually, my not doing something is doing something. Does that make sense? It's very tricky here. <laughs> do you get it? Do you me explain it again? See, we know that God wants to work Christ into our being. And ultimately, through this, Christ comes forth out of our being. This is in the principle of grace. I mean, God does something we cannot do. And by our enjoyment of Him as, our, as the rich utter full of nutrients and spiritual nutrients and spiritual vitamins to supply. We just take him in, receive him in, and something will come forth. We know that. But our flesh is very strong in this allegory. And instead of being patient, waiting for God, after a year, two years, three years, and so forth, we try to do something. And in doing something, now we know ah, that's the flesh. And the flesh here, you may think, well, isn't the flesh negative in the Bible? Yes, the flesh is negative in the Bible. But the flesh is not just the negative things in the Bible. The flesh is the living out of our fallen, sinful old man. So, of course, when we sin, when we lie, when we cheat, when we steal, that's the flesh. But when you're good and when you're kind and when you're humble and when you're patient, that's also the flesh. Does that make sense? So when we do that, God also rejects that. Because the product of that is Ishmael. And so we have one or two options. We can either do something or we don't do something. Well, to not do something is an effort, isn't it? It's like if someone makes you mad and you want to just, you know, say something. So you're like, I'm not saying anything. Well, that's called an effort not to say something. You see? It's like a catch-22. Should I, shouldn't I? Okay. To deal with the flesh takes many years. Okay. I don't know how long it takes, but it takes many years. And obviously we have to have a start. And what I don't want is for us to be paralyzed Right? They call it paralysis by analysis, right? We analyze it too much. Should I? Shouldn't I? Maybe I should. Maybe I shouldn't. Okay? 
Here's what I always say. What the Bible teaches us is in this situation, forget the analysis. Is it my patience or is it not my patience? Is this my flesh? Is this my effort or is it not my effort? Am I being kind here or am I not being kind? Is this me or is the Lord? Forget it. Doesn't matter. Don't worry about it. What we need to do is we just need to go to the all-sufficient one with an utter. To open up to him. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. I need you. Am I patient? Am I not patient? I don't care. I want you. I love you. I need you. Fill me with yourself. You're the real patient. You see? We need to open up and enjoy and take in the Lord. And then in time, the Lord will work things out. Does that make sense? So what the Lord wants today is He wants us mainly to be vessels open to Him. Take Him in, receive Him, enjoy Him as everything to us. Then He will operate within us and eventually Christ is brought forth out of us. And when this occurs, He accomplishes His eternal purpose by gaining many sons to be His expression. Okay? Okay.